You're listening to The Remix Baby, a podcast about fertility, family, and genetics. I'm Jana Rupnow, a fertility counselor and author of Three Makes Baby. Welcome to the show. Well, I have a surprise for everyone today that is listening in to the podcast. I have an author on the uh, podcast today, and he has a new book coming out in the new year that you're going to be very excited to learn more about. I have Peter Boney with me here today. Hi, Peter. Thanks for joining me. Nice to be here. Thanks for the invite. Yes, we've been in contact since, oh gosh, I don't know, before the summer, I think, uh, of we're in 2021 right now. Um, and I was really nice to hear from you because I, you know, got to hear your story um, and hear uh, all the stuff that you've learned about uh, the field that I've been working in for 12 years, which is the field of, of donor conception. So I was going to let, you know, you have a moment to kind of say a little bit about yourself so everyone can get to know who you are. Well, oh, Jen, I used to say that there were three uh, experiences that helped shape the person that I have become. <laughs> uh, certainly a dysfunctional childhood. I had a, a loving a working class family. Uh, very stable until I was nine years old in the fourth grade. And then when my father got sick, uh, was a, a lot of moves, uh, 10 different schools over a five-year period of time in several states. So that was very disruptive. Uh, I had a college education from a state college, University of Massachusetts at Amherst. That was uh, very impactful to me. And then a life-altering experience as an on-the-ground special operations team leader in combat in Vietnam. Wow. So all three of those things really have shaped the person that I've become and my leadership style. Mm -hmm. Um, For a living, I was a high tech CEO parachuting into troubled situations, sort of in special operations style. Yeah. (laughs) uh, Helping companies out of hot water and either the leadership, a financial or an identity crisis. And here I was in 1995 on the edge of turning 50 years old. That was 26 years ago this month, actually. that I had my own uh, life altering experience and my own identity crisis. Uh, I was still the same person after that, but everything had changed for me. The sense of who and what I was and what I had become had all changed for me. When my then 75 year old mother, who was recuperating from a post-operative stroke, spilled the beans. Wow. The beans being that dad wasn't biological, he was sterile. And I was conceived in the waning days of World War II with the help of an anonymous sperm donor. Mm. Uh, So every uh, competing emotion uh, tumbled from me at that period of time. How could you be both uh, relieved and uh, and angry at the same time? How could you be jubilant and sad all at the same time? Yeah. Well, okay. And, you know, up to this point, you had a successful career. You had been, you had served our country and survived that. You have been through, I mean, really had so much success in your life. And then you come upon this news um, that was, like you said, spilled the beans because of a stroke, something you can't control, you know? Um, and then you find out that you aren't who your father isn't who your biological father. What? And then you say this kind of was life altering. There was relief. There was all these mixed emotions. Like, tell me, was there a sense there, something that you knew was off or that, that, that this came as a, maybe some sense of, like you said, relief or not a surprise? 
Well, there was always something a little off uh, for me uh, as a uh, in part of a working class family, college educated. I had a, a leadership position and uh, continued to strive in my uh, my career. And uh, I was a little intimidating to my family mm-hmm. yeah. on both sides. Uh, they had never seen the likes of uh, me before. Where, where had I come from? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Italian dad, I was the only fair complexion, blonde haired uh, member of the family. Mm-hmm. Northern Italians, they all had crystal blue eyes, but I was very different in my appearance mm-hmm. uh, in that regard as well. So something was a little off. Yeah. Uh, my, my dad suffered from unipolar depression, and for the last four years of his life, he was unable to work, mm-hmm. and he just got tired of being sick and took his own life when I was 16 oh, years old. Wow. Uh, oh, so old sorry. Italian families uh, have a, a little uh, superstition about uh, that. They didn't, okay. didn't want anyone to talk about it. Sure. Uh, it was an mm-hmm. insinuation that they were flawed. Maybe I was flawed, too. Oh, yes. Uh, okay. And I felt as though they had abandoned my dad, who is a hero of his family, in his sickness. Yeah. Uh, and oh. therefore, would they abandon me? So I had some baggage to, uh, that I was carrying along. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Wow. What a powerful story. And when you think of Italian, the culture and the heritage, and there's just so much pride there. You know, I know that I, as an adoptee, I was told I was part Italian. So I did find out my great grandmother is full Italian. Um, and it, I, I didn't get as much passed down as I hoped. And when I did my, my, my 23 and me test, but there was a lot of pride there. And I felt that even not being connected to Italian family members, I still felt that Italian pride. Um, is that, did that show up in your life as well? Well, I learned this in 1995. And uh, DNA testing through 23andMe that, that started this whole thing off uh, didn't begin until 2007. Yeah. So I had a substantial period of time where I was knocking on some doors, uh, trying to find my heritage and, and uh, find the sperm donor uh, in an environment that was cloaked with secrecy with no records and no Absolutely. DNA testing. Yep. Yep. Uh, so I was, Absolutely. Uh, I was hitting stone walls. Holy, I mean, think about that, that take, you just took us back, you know, and I think that's so important because there's so much history here. And that's what I love about your book, Uprooted, by the way, we didn't didn't mention the title. I meant to do that. I want to say it now. It's family trauma, unknown origins, and the secretive history of artificial insemination. That's the title and subtitle of Peter Boney's book. And I, what I loved about this is I know I've been trying to figure out and put all the pieces together of this history of of donor conception for the past 12 years. And then here you come and you send me this manuscript and boom, you do this incredible research, which of course it's your nature, you're successful, you're driven, you know, detail oriented. And there's this incredible history in this book of that's walks alongside your story, your personal story. Um, I learned so much about the history of donor insemination and donor conception from your book. And I have read dozens of books and there's not a whole lot out there about donor insemination before this and nothing put together the puzzle like you did. So, well, I have a little bit of differentiation. I, uh, I'm not an academic. Many of the books that are out there are mm-hmm. by academics for academics. And I had a very True. unique lens. I had the lens of somebody who was misattributed in a, a non-parental event. I was mm-hmm. donor conceived. Uh, and since I couldn't, 
find any information uh, about what the doctor, who the doctor was or any of his, his records, I thought my only thing that I could do was begin to research the environment that enabled my conception in the first place. Okay. So I took a look at the history going back to uh, plants and animals, uh, gosh, mm. to biblical times. Yeah. Like animal husbandry, I guess, is where it all started, right? Which was fascinating to me to learn that that is where it started. And that is, and because it started that way, it some like, for lack of a better word, processes and policies that were used in, in animal husbandry were passed on to the human. Is this right? Is it the right way to say this? How would you say it, that? It's pretty much the right way to say it. Yeah. Certainly from a scientific standpoint, the, the processes uh, were documented uh, on the farm and applied to the human being. Yeah. Uh, but the, the first insemination uh, of, a, of an animal actually took place in 1322 by an Arab chieftain who had, uh, so the story goes, mm -hmm. uh, stolen sperm from his rival's prize stallion <laughs> to uh, inseminate his prize mare and pup out came wonderful. Now, you might ask, how do you steal sperm from a stallion? So you can just imagine. Now, now whether or not that is <laughs> yeah. uh, fact or fiction, uh, the fact is that the uh, Arabs have a seventh century head start and uh, breeding some of the finest uh, stallions in the world. Yeah. Yeah. And so they were, and that's what I love is the way you, you know, because again, we, in order to understand where we are today, it's so important to know where we came from. And that is what you provide is this timeline that connects, connects the dots and gives us a good understanding. For example, you say that, you know, what you kind of explain why the secrecy started with, with human donor insemination. Um, can you expand upon kind of what, why it was started, why it began in this, in this really secret way. And especially in the time that you were conceived. Uh, it was very secretive. You said World War, like World War II? Well, I was World War II. World War II. Yeah. Uh, the first artificial insemination by a donor actually took place in 1886 at Jefferson Hospital in Philadelphia. Uh, it wasn't until the 1920s that this began to gain some degree of steam with the uh, uh, practitioners putting out handbooks, both uh, legal and medical, uh, protecting the donor, protecting the recipient. Uh, the church was dead set against anything like this. The church had a good deal to say uh, that was listened to by society overall. Okay. Uh, the legal community set a precedent in uh, 1921 that a donor conceived child was illegitimate. Yeah that a, a woman who had conceived a child through donor insemination was guilty of uh, adultery mm -hmm. and could, a mm -hmm. husband could be granted a divorce on the basis of adultery, yeah. even if he was con fully consenting to the whole program. Yeah. Uh, so given the, uh, the sociological barriers, let's say, to mm -hmm. uh, how science had evolved, uh, the, uh, the practice just became very clandestine. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Now, my parents, according to my mother, were given a choice uh, at, after testing my uh, father that he was uh, sterile. Uh, the choices were very simple. You could adopt a child and remain childless or have a child through this uh, rather new process that mm-hmm. uh, would protect anyone uh, from uh, the embarrassment of being sterile, from the legality of uh, being an adulteress. Uh, and the child uh, could have the uh, birth certificate with the father's name on it and therefore okay. be legitimate. Okay. So yeah. my birth certificate, along with maybe 10,000 other birth certificates in the 1940s, according to surveys, mm-hmm. uh, was a, a hoax. Yeah. It was hiding. It was hiding the truth. And I know at one point in the book, you mentioned a term semi-adopted that we don't really hear that anymore, but that was a term that they, that you used or that they used to use. I found that it began in the thirties when uh, doctors were reviewing some prospects of having a child for their childless couple, Mm -hmm. Uh, given that the uh, sociology and the legal and the religious aspects of donor conception were pretty negative. I'm a marketing guy, right? It's all about packaging. <laughs> yes. Right? You can do this thing that's semi-adoption. Not, don't call it artificial insemination yeah. by an anonymous sperm donor. Let's call it semi-adoption. Semi-adoption, yeah. You are the birth certificate father and uh, mm-hmm. no one knows. That's right. And, you know, it's interesting that they use that terminology to begin with, because that shows you that they recognized that the the similarities between adoption and donor conception, that there was a uh, misplaced genetic, you know, a um, loss of a genetic connection uh, in the family. And, you know, now it's funny because I I come up against people that are like, it's not the same. You, it's not adoption and donor conception are nothing alike, you know? And so that's, I, I, I like to kind of I'm glad that you mentioned that in the book because um, it does show that there are some similarities there um, and people recognize that a, a long time ago. And that is just like, for some people, it really does knowing their genetic roots and knowing where they came from does matter. And it is important for some reason. Uh, we don't maybe quite fully understand uh, whether that's epigenetics or whether it's uh, our, our culture's obsession with uh, family lineage. I, I don't know. I don't know what it is. I mean, I've kind of pondered on that. Do you have any In thoughts? the 1960s, a, a pair of psychologists studied the daylights out of adoptees, trying to uh, find reasons that uh, late stage adoptees had uh, uh, adjustment issues. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. they uh, they coined the term genealogical bewilderment. Yes, yes. And there's a, there's a burning need there just to know from whence you came. And I know that burning need drove me to research for 22 years until I had discovered uh, the source of my seed. Yeah. I was driven and there was nothing ever going to stop me. Yeah. It was like in you. And, you know, I, when I, I wrote a little blurb for your book, and that's what I said is I was like, the, you know, the social, legal, and religious climate that encouraged secrets was still no match for your personal determination and the universal need for self-discovery, that you didn't stop your research until your parents' secret came to light. And I think it goes back to that, that idea of self-discovery is is knowing ourselves and trying to figure that out is such an important task in life, I think for many people. Yeah. Yeah. So you know, I, um, it's a fascinating, fascinating book. I was curious though, what, 
made you decide to write about it after you, you know, I know 20 years of researching, exhaustive research, tiresome research, research before DNA testing even existed. Um, that is, that's some real detective work. What made you decide to write about it? And then at what point were you documenting this thinking like in journals, thinking that you might write about this someday? Uh, well, a couple of different waves of things. Uh, re researching this, I, I researched uh, up until my conception. And uh, once I, uh, eight, how many years later after that, uh, 22 years later, uh, found through Ancestry.com after a 23andMe test that was uh, a decade prior to then, found the source of my seed and had all of my questions answered. Uh, I thought this could be an interesting story, but I needed to research further. I needed to research what had occurred in the whole area of assisted reproductive technology since my conception. Oh yeah, okay, yeah. Uh, and, and when I learned the evolution of the field and uh, saw some giant flaws, let's say, uh, mm -hmm. the, the only thing that really strikes me now is a question that I still have unanswered. That's not, how do I have siblings? My unanswered question is how many siblings do I have really? Yeah. And this is an industry that's uh, ripe with a need uh, to have some element of uh, controls on it. Yes. To uh, reflect upon uh, the realities of the day. Yes. Yes. It is true that uh, there's with no regulation, we we're just having these conversations in today with several people uh, that even though, even with egg donation, um, those numbers are starting to grow too, because of the way they're splitting eggs into lots. So um, sperm donation is, is uh, not alone in the fact that you can have multiple siblings. Um, I've talked to groups that are up in the 80 to hundred range. And I think a lot of people don't know that they're pretty shocked by that. Uh, still, you know, parents I talk to every day are surprised. Well, by science that. advances well uh, faster than sociology. Uh, it does, and, and doesn't it? it. <laughs> I mean, we have the uh, we have the SEC and the FDA and the FTC and the FCC. Uh, there's the uh, Uniform uh, Anatomical Gift Act. There's the National Organ Transplant Act, uh, but there's nothing regulatory regarding uh, human life. Uh, I have a friend that uh, used to breed Rottweilers, and I shared with him my whole background and my, my research. And he said, my gosh, Pete, you know, breeding puppies has more regulatory oversight than this thing with human beings. Oh, ouch. That's hard to hear. That's hard to hear. Um, and do you know, I mean, do you have an answer for that? Do you know in your research, what did you find the reason for that is? Free market forces are uh, uh, pretty uh, ingrained in our economic structure. Uh, sure. There are lobbying organizations that uh, promote free market forces mm -hmm. uh, that, that do not aspire to have things change. Uh, mm -hmm. yeah. the, the sperm banks right now, as an example, uh, is a three and a half billion dollar industry. That's with a B. With yeah, a B. with a B. With a and B. that uh. is expected to grow to five billion dollars by 2025. That's not that far away. Um, I mean, I've been in the high technology field, and I'll tell you that uh, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan and these investment banks would be uh, thrilled and delighted to uh, 
be part of an industry that has that kind of growth dynamic. And it's a bigger growth dynamic than that because foreign competition is precluded by United States law. Uh, you can't take a, an apple from France and bring it to the United States. Uh, tr- you ever try to get an apple out of uh, a plane? <laughs> right. Customs? I mean, alarm bells ring and you're almost arrested. That's true. Uh, yeah. Uh, other countries can actually export uh, uh, or, or import uh, gametes. Oh, yeah. Uh, sperm, yeah. egg, and embryo. In the United States, this is a, a protected industry. Mm-hmm. So it's a lot about the economics that's driving the forces to not change. Yes. Yes. And, you know, in fact, I recently visited with one of my clients who's was using a bank in the States, but the donor was in a a country in Europe. So they're importing sperm from other parts of the world too, and paying donors in other countries as well. In the 1920s, there was a a real eugenics uh, drive that spilled over to uh, donor conception and uh, it resurged again in the 60s. And I think it's uh, there today as well. The number one exporter of sperm is actually Denmark. Mm. Uh, And that is exported to over 50 countries today. Uh, tall, blonde, blonde wide, educated, intelligent, and uh, uh, they're not compensated for their uh, uh, sperm as well. So there's a little bit of uh, altruism there. Okay. Uh, so that's that's the uh, the high demand arena. Okay. And uh, this stuff is marketed uh, not by medical professionals today, but by people that have a Procter and Gamble merchandising background. Uh, they, they they operate like Harrods or uh, or uh, Nordstroms for crying out loud. Uh, okay. There are catalogs and uh, descriptions and inventories. Yeah. Uh, there's an 80-20 rule that I learned in business. Uh, the 80-20 inventory rule. 80% of the inventory actually purchased by uh, uh, 20% of the people, but. of the inventory is purchased by 80% of the people. So if that 80-20 rule works uh, in the sperm bank arena, uh, it's coupled with some other statistics. Uh, Five of the largest sperm banks have about 100 donors each, and they supply about half of the sperm demand. Uh, Well, you put that together with the 80-20 rule, and then you give frozen sperm now that Mm -hmm. has a life of 10 years and you, you factor that in, it's no wonder people have over 100 siblings per donor. Yeah. Yes. And then you, just doing the math on that, how does that, what does that look like for future generations? You know, I think donor can see people have told me what people aren't thinking about is their grandchildren. And, you know, this number grows through generations. Uh, I don't come from a frozen sperm era. Mm-hmm. Uh, but given that I don't know how many siblings I have, I'm uh, very fearful that my grandchildren have an opportunity to uh, date uh, a close relative. Mm-hmm. Uh, smart kids go to smart kid colleges and right. who knows? And, yeah, uh, like wh- attracts whether like. <laughs> this, uh, whether or not this thing called genetic sexual attraction is real or alchemy, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I don't want to find out uh, with yeah. my grandchildren. Right. I'd rather have have zero risk. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we know that people are 
attracted to people who look like them. Um, and it's not uncommon to, you know, to couple and partner with somebody who, who looks similar to you, or maybe even looks like someone in your family. So there's just a familiarity I think we're drawn to. Um, yeah. Who knows the reason why, but, but it certainly is alarming and upsetting to many donor conceived people that don't know who their half siblings are. And I'll tell you what, I have doctors that are, are really um, facilitating these arrangements within a small geographic area and, and it's anonymous. And so they're with egg donation. And so these families could literally be going and have gone to the, their children, go to the same school sure. and don't know it. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it is, it's something that is, is um, it's important to raise awareness about what would you say, you know, with the book, what would you say, like, you'd like to see change um, in this industry, just given all that, you know, now. I call for a, uh, a donor conceived bill of rights, uh, Jaina. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm all for yeah. enabling childless couples to have a family. Yeah. Uh, and there's plenty of representation for the rights of the donor mm-hmm. and for the rights of the receiving parents, but there's nobody out there who's saying these donors have rights. Uh, these donor conceived people have rights. I have rights. Yeah. Uh, I'd like yeah. to see uh, the uh, no anonymity uh, yeah. for a donor, just a full disclosure. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that mm-hmm. would require the donor to get genetically tested. There are too many cases where they're not genetically tested or okay. have not been genetically tested and are passing off uh, yes. needless, needlessly. They're passing off birth defects. That's true. Uh, yes. Mm-hmm. How about requiring uh, the disclosure of the donor health and uh, donor genetics to begin with, the genealogy? Uh, require the registry register of siblings to one another. So backing up for a second, they right now, I want to make it clear that the donors, if you're out there thinking, well, I've got my donor's health, um, it's self-report and uh, there historically hasn't been a lot of background or very little background checks on the donors to actually verify the information. Uh, so, and when you mentioned that health information, are you thinking like ongoing? Because we know that health is a snapshot in time. You know, it changes as over the years and what donor can see people don't have is that changing information, new information. Exactly. I can't yeah. go to my doctor and tell him what, uh, if you are a donor conceived through an anonymous donor, whether it be egg or sperm or, or, or embryo, and you have no idea as to both, uh, you can't go to your doctor to say, I have this, that, or the other thing mm-hmm. that I'm concerned about in my heritage. Yeah. You have nothing at all. So you would want donors to have almost a mandatory health um, update that they a, report? A requirement to get tested, number one, uh, genetic testing. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And a uh, prior to being accepted as a donor, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, then uh, a full disclosure on an ongoing basis. Ongoing basis, yeah. yeah, yeah. And then, and the then root siblings. I mentioned I mentioned mm-hmm. the registry of siblings to one another, yeah. So that these uh, one hundred people uh, have the opportunity to know who each one is. Okay. And uh, actually define some legal consequences for blatant fertility fraud. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it be mm-hmm. a doctor unethically using his own sperm uh, right. countless times in the same community to uh, right. donate mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. or uh, deciding he's going to use uh, 
X sperm instead of Y sperm that was selected by the, uh, the yeah. recipients because it was convenient. Yeah. Or also misrepresenting donors. Uh, if you're, if you're selling sperm um, and you say your donor is, uh, you know, has a certain health history or certain education, you know, I've heard of cases where bigger banks buy out smaller banks, but their marketing doesn't change. And so right. parents think they're getting, um, you know, an Ivy league grad mm-hmm. and, and in fact, the donor was recruited initially from, you know, Ohio or something, you know, this is happening. And so yeah. there's no from penalty. Ohio, for that. He's schizophrenic. And he, he said that he was fluent in 16 languages and uh, mm-hmm. had a PhD That's cases like that all the time. Yeah. And uh, the other piece of the donor conceived bill of rights is just limiting the number of, uh, offspring per donor and, yes. and make it real. Today, there's no law. There's only a guideline put out by an association that's essentially a trade association. Uh, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the guideline is uh, 25 recipients uh, per 800,000 population. Yeah. So let's do the math on that. Yeah, right? let's do that math. That means that if I lived in Sacramento, Mm-hmm. I could have 25 siblings. If I lived in metropolitan Boston, I could have 125 oh. siblings. But if I were in downtown LA or New York City, I could have 250 siblings. And that's following the guideline. That's following the that's recommend. That's just a recommendation too. There's nothing that enforces that. It's not a law. It's a recommendation. That's a guideline for sperm bank. Uh, Well, Mm -hmm. I could be a donor and uh, go to eight different sperm banks. Yep. So you can multiply that by eight. Mm -hmm. So there are, uh, uh, it's it's a fine industry. There's many fine people that work in the industry. They enable childless couples to have a child. That's just wonderful. Uh, Put some common sense into this thing and let's uh, not let the breeding of Rottweilers uh, take precedent. Yeah, absolutely. Common sense, ethics. Yeah. You know, caring. The, the uh, science moves so rapidly. Uh, ethics has yet to be tested in some other arenas. Mm-hmm. Uh, just earlier this year, uh, a uh, research group in Australia, which has been uh, very pronounced in their research for uh, reproductive technology, was able to do a model embryo with uh, cellular skin. No sperm, no egg, but a model embryo Mm -hmm. as a result. So Mm -hmm. some of these ethics uh, uh, really need to catch up with the science. And the social narratives too. That's one thing that is so far behind. You know, if we, you know, like you said, you were conceived at a time it was so protected, masculinity was protected. So um, the laws about um, uh, illegitimacy, all these things were were at a were, were at a place. Then science was way ahead, and that's continued. Scientists sped ahead of our social narratives. And so who suffers in that situation are the children who are born from these situations who have to deal with an old social narrative that doesn't match the way they were conceived. And that's what we're trying to do is catch up, catch that social narrative up. So children don't 
suffer as much um, and have as much pain and, and feel as disconnected and, and sort of alienated, you know, like they're of a different species sometimes. I think that the research has uh, shown that uh, irrespective of uh, how uh, you may have been misattributed, uh, many of the uh, traumatic responses are identical. Yeah. Uh, whether they be late discovery adoption, a uh, extramarital affair or one night stand, uh, switched at birth, uh, perhaps uh, Aunt Martha was really raising you and cousin Mary was really your mom. Yeah. And that happens in families today. Sure does. But mm-hmm. the, uh, the, re- the response is when somebody learns that their genetics uh, was a hoax is uh, identical mm-hmm. and it's disruptive. I'll tell you, it is really uh, traumatic and disruptive. It is. It is. And that's why you wrote the book. And that's what your book tells the story of is how it, how it disrupted your life, how it, you know, changed sort of the way you saw not only yourself, but your story, your relatives, how it impacted your own family and what you did to reconcile that and find answers. And now you're sharing with others. And I just find that to be the most powerful and healing way to deal with a story that you had no, ultimately no control over um, is to, is to give it forward to others to help heal um, a situation that needs a lot of, a lot of attention right now. Yeah. Thanks for that recognition, mm-hmm. uh, Jenna. I aspire for the book actually to be uh, the go-to book for the fertility industry, if you will, mm-hmm. uh, past, present, and future donors, recipients, medical practitioners, the uh, counseling uh, world, uh, the legal community, uh, number one, uh, to uh, positively impact the practice of Mm -hmm. uh, assisted reproductive technology, and then be representative of the feelings of all misattributed, not only just donor-conceived misattributed. So Uh, true. The experts today uh, believe that some two to four percent of us are misattributed in a non-parental event. Wow. Uh, some make a case that it's actually a little less. Some make a case that it's actually quite larger than yeah. the two to four percent. So just using that two to four percent number in my high school graduating class of 100, uh, two to four of them uh, are misattributed in a extra from from a, a non parental event. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. If I could take this out several generations, if I could take it out five to eight generations and use that two to 4% number. Mm-hmm. Uh, that means that my entire high school graduating class of 100 mm-hmm. is misattributed to somebody in their family tree up to their third to sixth great grandparent. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, uh, uh, DNA technology today is uh, going to disrupt many, many stories of family lore, potentially. A lot of broken branches. And, you know, and I think that's so important again, to look back at like how these social narratives have become so powerful. And yet there's so kind of an illusion, aren't they? You know, I, I jokingly said um, the, to some, somebody that I was talking, we talked to a lot of people, talked to a lot of donor conceived people, a lot of misattributed people. And I said, you know, uh, if you look at uh, so many Disney movies or themes, plot lines, it is, it almost always involves an orphan a misattributed person kind of jokingly said, you know, didn't they learn from Game of Thrones? Don't mess with Jon Snow. <laughs> We've got a lot of lot to think about after after talking with you. Well, I would say, you know, what you can do now is 
go and, and you've got a pre-sale going on with the book uprooted. And so where can people find this if they want to go ahead and just get on that list and not miss the notification? Well, you can go to my website, number one, that's uh, uh, peterjbonnie.com. Okay. And uh, you'll have links to uh, Amazon and, uh, and uh, uh, the, the other online sellers of uh, okay. books. You uh-huh. can request it from your uh, friendly local bookstore, your independent bookstore as well. Okay. Uh, it's be available as a Kindle and it will be available as an audiobook. Oh, great. Yeah. So Peter J. Bonnie, B-O-N-I. Um, and then also you'll be, are there ways to connect with you if people want to, you know, learn more about this? Are you out there at all or? I, I will be out there, but my okay. website has a way to connect with me as perfect. well. Perfect. Yeah. Perfect. So check out the website, go and, and connect with, with Peter there. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Same here. Same here. Thanks again for the opportunity. Thanks for listening. If you would like to follow me for more content, you can find me on Instagram at Jana Rupnow LPC and Facebook. And you can also grab a copy of my book, Three Makes Baby, on Amazon.com, BarnesandNoble.com, and Target.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and rate it and share it with a friend if you like it. Have a great day.